love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Hi, this is Dan Miller. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to know your passion. I want you to live life fully alive, laugh readily, work with joy, make a difference in the world every day. You know, those are notable, worthy, honorable things to do. We're going to talk about how you can do that in your own life and how you can instill that in those people around you. You know, we can be a big impact on people around us if we are if we have attractive characteristics within ourselves people will be drawn to you if you know your passion if you're living life fully every day if you laugh work with joy i mean those are things that are very attractive characteristics you do that you'll find that you will be elevated in your workplace you'll be seen as a leader you'll be respected in your community Hey, we're going to talk about all that. Here's some of the questions we're going to be unpacking in today's show. Your questions. Can I really double my income? Someone says, more of us want that group for introverts. Where can we sign up? Talked last week about a group for introverts and the guy who suggested it humorously said he didn't think anybody would sign up. But yeah, a whole lot of people said, I want to be in that group. Dan, how does one interview for new positions when working 65 hours a week now? Should I have one focus for my coaching or be more general to cover more options? Now listen, listen to this one. Isn't it true that the attitude of the person to whom you're married does have some effect on outcomes? Oh my gosh, does it ever? Yeah, we'll talk about that one for sure. Dan, I'm doing okay, but it would make, but would it make sense to test my marketability? I'm 40 years old and feel like my most productive years are still ahead. I live in a small town and was wondering if coaching would be a full, good, good full-time business here. All right. Is coaching dependent on where you live? We'll talk about that. Well, if you've got a question, you can go to the 48days.com website, click on the podcast link. You'll see a little box jump up and you can submit your question there. We'd be happy to entertain that for an upcoming show couple things just a couple uh, details here I talk about stitcher sometimes now I'm I'm not an affiliate I don't get anything out of promoting them but you know it, it's a pretty cool app it's a free app stitcher that's where I listen to podcast now here's why it's one of my favorites for one thing you create your own kind of channel so that everything you're interested in automatically comes in there and loads. So it's ready to go, but they've got some really cool features. One of those, now this is going to seem like I'm going back on what I've always said. One of those is you can control the speed at which you listen to a podcast. Now we have techies out there, people like my buddy, West Connor, Dr. West Connor, who for years has increased the speed. He, he's a voracious listener audio programs and he has all kinds of technical things that he can do to increase the speed and i always joke with him you know i don't want to listen to alvin and chipmunks i want to listen to the real thing well like west i'm pretty impatient in the use of my time i want to accomplish a lot in short periods of time and i found that the little button on stitcher that allows me to double the speed is 
pretty stinking cool. Now, if you use Stitcher, once you have a program in, over in the top left-hand corner, there's a little three-bar thing. Looks like audio controls. You click on that, you're going to have a couple things jump up there. One of those is, when I know one of them, this is really cool too. You can go back 10 seconds. Have you ever been listening to a podcast and you think, oh, wow, what was that quotation he just, what was that website he just referenced? Well, on Stitcher, you can just hit that button and it'll go back 10 seconds. That's a really cool feature. But the other thing on the right-hand side of that little three-pronged approach there is you can control the speed. So I've been doing that and I've been pleasantly surprised when yesterday in my one hour on the treadmill in the morning, I listened to the latest Dave Ramsey Entree Leadership Podcast that Chris Lacurdo host. So I listened to that in its entirety and to Mike Hyatt's latest podcast in its entirety during the one hour I was on the treadmill. And both of those are 50 plus minutes long. It's pretty cool to get a lot of content. One of the reasons I've never been a big fan of listening to audio is because I can read so much faster than what anybody is able to talk. So reading, I can scan and very quickly get through a lot of information. So I'm impatient in, in going listening to audio because I have to go at the same speed as the speaker. Well, no longer. You don't have to do that. And double the speed, it changes the voice inflection a little bit, but it doesn't really, you, you can still hear all the content very readily. Anyway, just a tip if you want to increase what you're able to listen to at a particular time. Now, this last week, I had an interesting experience. I was up in Ohio for a couple of days of business meetings. We were meeting with um, one of our vendors. They do they handle the software for our personality profiles, and we're working some new initiatives, some joint venture things we're going to do together that I'm really excited about. But knowing that I was going to be in that area, there was a teacher who teaches Amish kids, and she it happens to be a big fan of my work. They use 48 days and some of their teaching things for these kids and all. And she was just, uh, threw a thought up in the air, you know, would I ever even consider speaking to her kids or am I, you know, above that essentially? Well, I always cringe when people assume that I'm, you know, beyond being available, but with her, it just so happened that I was going to be in Ohio. I mean, this was like two days in advance. Let me be in there. And I said, look, if you can set something up for Thursday morning, I'll come. You just tell me where to be. Well, she was jazzed. So instead of being at the little place where she meets with these Amish kids, she headed at one of the local high schools there. So we had the first couple of rows full of her Amish kids, and then they dismissed classes for the rest of the high school. So they were in there as well. And I talked about changes in the workplace and how to find your own opportunity, how to create it. If it's not there, how to identify your passion, just some of those things, just a neat encounter. But these are, these are Amish kids. Now I have a lot of affinity for, for them because I grew up in that culture. These are Amish kids between the ages of 12 and 18 who have already stopped going to traditional school. It used to be that the natural expectation was that the kids would then join their mom and dad in the farming operation. That's what 90% of them did. Well, that's changed dramatically over the last few years. Farming no longer supports that many families. And we're finding that more and more of the Amish kids are moving into other kinds of occupations. So yes, they're starting buggy shops and 
sawmills and leather crafting shops, those kind of things. But there needs to be more than that. So now we've got a whole generation of Amish kids saying, you know, I really need to make myself a candidate to get a job out here in the rest of the world or do something on my own. What would that be when I've had such limited exposure? Those are the kids that Amy Stauffer is working with. Amy's an amazing teacher in working with these kids to help them develop who they are. But they were just a delightful group to work with. At, at the end of the time, she even said, and this kind of surprised me because historically the Amish do not want to have their picture taken. I mean, that creates an idol. And the Bible tells us, don't, don't worship idols. And that's how they see having an image. It's just like a graven image. You, you idolize yourself if you have a picture. Anyway, don't need to go deep into the theology there, but they don't take pictures. Well, she said, any of you that it, it would be okay, why don't you come up on stage and we'll take your picture with Dan? Well, so they did. So I've got, I don't know, I think there was about maybe 15 of them or so that came up and on stage and we posed and took a couple pictures, which I thought that's a hoot taking pictures of me with these Amish kids, but they had questions prepared. They were amazing in the questions they had prepared. They asked me about being a life coach and ask about people going through dramatic career transitions. Does it work? Or do I find that they then go back to what they were doing previously? I mean, they were asking amazing questions I'm sure they were prompted by their competent teacher some, but it seemed to be very authentic. And they continued even after the presentation with questions that they had. Interesting experience. One of the things that uh, is just part of living the life that I love in being able to have the kind of opportunities to do those kind of things. Now, one more thing, then I'm going to go to the questions. Incidentally, oh, I've got a quotation for us. Skipped over that. The quotation for today comes from Michelangelo, who says... The great, the greater danger for most of us is not that our aim is too high and we miss it, but that it is too low and we reach it. Now I talked recently to a friend of mine and he said, yeah, he said, I'm not really sure what I'm going to do. He said, every goal I ever set, you know, I already hit and I'm just feel like I'm kind of in neutral. And I thought, really? Every goal you ever set, you hit? I know this guy, I know, I know his life. And I'm thinking, dude, you, you set your goals too low. Yeah. He has his own company and I know things have gone well, but still, I mean, I set goals so that I have about a 50, 50 chance of hitting them because I, I would, I would be bored and terrified probably if I at any point thought I had hit every goal I ever set, didn't know what to shoot for anymore. My goodness, I can't imagine doing that. So, yeah, the greater danger for most of us is not that our aim is too high and we miss it, but that it is too low and we reach it. If you hit every goal you ever set, you need to raise the bar. Now, I had somebody, I'm working with somebody right now who, with a PhD, is making $42,000 a year. We know that that's pretty marginal. She feels like it's pretty marginal. She feels like she's undercompensated for all the time she spent in universities getting degrees. And I would certainly concur with that at $42,000 a year with a PhD. Yeah. You might've been better off to just go and get a job as a manager at Taco Bell. Cause you could be making more money than that and not have spent all the money 
on degrees, money and time, the opportunity costs that we talk about. So as we begin to unpack that, you know, could she position herself for a different position and double her income? Probably not. She's in an area of specialty that's not going to be a real hot topic, pretty predictable. She's really a candidate just to do continuing research, which is what she's been doing. So it's going to be pretty tough to do that. So I started talking about what could you do with your area of expertise where you could package that in a way other than just delivering it day by day with your personal services. Let me give you an example of this. Her PhD is in plant pathology. So could she write an ebook on how to prevent mold in your house, how to grow organic herbs just outside your window that you use, actually use in your own salads? I mean, I don't know. We could make a list of 20 things like that, that she would be very competent in doing. If she put those together in little ebooks or pamphlets or brochures or an instructional manual, put a little audio in there, we could come up with a whole lot of different ways to package that. If she could do that, could we in fact impact her income? Yeah, I think we could. Now here's how I presented that to her. And I want you to think about the same thing here, depending on where your income is at $42,000. She's making $20 an hour, assuming 40 hours a week. That's what that is. $20 an hour. I said, what if we put up something where we were selling your information as I described but we were only making $10 an hour. Would you be able to survive on that? Well, obviously she's a little disappointed, crestfallen. I don't know if I could survive on that or not. If I had something that was just making $10 an hour. And I said, well, guess what? You're overlooking something here. When we put something on the internet, then it has the ability to work for you 168 hours a week, not 40. If we had something that was working for you 168 hours a week, making $10 an hour, which is effectively half what you're making in your working hours now, that would make your income from that sideline alone $87,000, more than double what you're making now. Now, this is also an example of changing from linear to residual income. In working with professionals, physicians, attorneys, dentists, accountants, engineers, they're used to significant hourly pay, but they have the same pay model as somebody working at McDonald's who asks you if you want fries with that. They work an hour, they get paid an hour. That's what they do. A lot of them have a hard time understanding the concept of residual income. Residual income means, I mean, most, most of those people do something once and get paid once. Personally, I'm really only interested in the things where I do it once and get paid 10,000 times. What is it that you could do with knowledge that you have or something that you could put together? I mean, now, now we can take this down to any level that you want. You may be good with your hands. And so you make birdhouses on the weekend. All right. You make birdhouses. You take them to last week. We had this, the main street festival. Here in Franklin, Tennessee, over 100,000 people there. The weather was gorgeous, and it was booth after booth after booth, over 400 booths of, of individuals who are doing things. Jewelry, there must have been 30 jewelry booths, and people who just do little craft things and blah, blah, blah. They make whatever it is that they make. So you can make birdhouses and go there, and you are creating linear income. What if you put together a pattern where you showed if, you showed a supply list. If you go to Home Depot, you get these five 
wood pieces, get a little thing of nails here or screws. This is what you need. And you have a pattern for how to make your own birdhouse. Then you can decorate it with your grandkids any way that you want to. Just in that little subtle transition, you have opened the door for potential residual income rather than linear, because rather than you putting in your time and effort to make a birdhouse, you now have transitioned your knowledge about that into something that conveys your knowledge. You can share that. And once you have that pattern made, you can have the same, you can have people purchase the same product 10,000 times. If you make a birdhouse, you sell it. You have one customer. If you make a pattern, you can have 10,000 customers for the same product. That's how you transition from linear to residual income. So the things that I do are all like that. I look for things. What can I do once and get paid 10,000 times? So we have all kinds of systems and things in place because that's really my effective model. Now I thought that was important to share because we get so many questions where people feel really that they've reached a ceiling in what they're doing. Well, probably not, but you may just have to look at what you're doing, look at it differently so you can open the door on residual income. Well, let me jump into some of the questions here, Luke. Now, this is just kind of a comment. Luke says regarding last week's discussion about a group for introverts, sign me up. I love the podcast. It's my favorite part of the week. Well, we had a whole lot of comments about that. I talked last week. We had a listener who said he thought about creating another group for introverts, but then ha ha, probably no way to would sign up because introverts aren't outgoing. They don't do that. They don't even connect well. Well, you had a whole bunch of people say, man, if there were a group for introverts, I'd do that. Hey, here's another comment from Eric, another introvert. He says, Dan, when I first started listening to your 48 days podcast a year ago, I had no idea the effect it would have on my life. I empathize with every analytical detail oriented introvert who wrote to you with fear and doubt. And I often found myself astonished that you were just as optimistic about their ability to follow their dreams as you were the action oriented entrepreneur with all the confidence in the world. Your podcast remained in my ears for months to come. And I'm thrilled to be able to thank you and the 48 days.net community for being the inspiration behind my new coaching business at harmonyinsights.com. I hope to attend a future coaching with excellence event in order to express my gratitude in person for the hope and encouragement you've given me and so many others in similar shoes, Eric. Well, Eric, thank you for your kind comment. And I certainly hope that no matter what kind of personality style that you've got, if you're listening regularly, you know that I see opportunities for extraordinary success without remaking how God has wired you and gifted you. You don't have to do that. You just have to find something that is an authentic fit. The more I coach people, the more I see that as my primary task. I'm just helping people live out authenticity. It's not superimposing something. Here's the hottest trends. Here's who's hiring. Here are the best franchises, the hottest business opportunities. No. What is authentic about you? That's where you have the source of greatest opportunity. That's where you can unleash something that really is fulfilling, meaningful, purposeful, and profitable. Those are the things that show up if you are authentic. Well, thanks for your, thanks for your comment there. Well, that just tells us we're just in a transition here. Just to remind you, you're listening to Dan Miller on a 48 Days Online radio show. We're talking about listener questions. 
you've got a question, you can submit a question. Just go to the 48days.com website, click on the podcast link. You'll be able to submit your question there. They cover a broad spectrum of things, things that affect our, certainly our work, but often go beyond that. You'll hear that in some of the upcoming questions right here. Mark says, Dan, I love your podcast. Thanks for all your great advice. I'm currently going through the schedule in 48 days to the work you love. I currently work 65 hours a week and it isn't easy to get time off. My question is when calling to follow up on your resume, how do you schedule an interview when you can't get time off during the week? Is suggesting a phone interview acceptable or an interview on a Saturday? What would you recommend? Thanks for your advice. Yes, you can do this. Mark, I commend you on taking the initiative to do a job search while you're still working. That puts you in a position of strength that puts you in a position of strength in your interviewing as well for them to know that yes, you're fully committed and you're very loyal to your current employer. You want to confirm those things. You don't want to tell them, Hey, I'm going to just call in sick so I can come over for an interview. No, that's a breach of integrity right there. It's a red flag to anybody interviewing you. Don't do that. Tell them, you know, it's difficult for me to arrange time during the day. Could we do an interview in the evening? Could we do a Saturday morning interview? Just ask that. I mean, keep in mind you're in the driver's seat as well when you do an interview. You're not just at the beck and call of somebody who is a potential employer. So you tell them what works for you. And that's not unreasonable at all for you to tell them that you're currently working and your schedule would make it more convenient for you to have a Saturday morning interview or a early morning or late evening interview. Or tell them that you're arranging two weeks out to take two vacation days and you're trying to schedule all your interviews in those two vacation days. Not unreasonable at all to frame it in that way. Great question. Seth from California says, Dan, you've mentioned benefit in specialization. How do I know when I've stepped beyond specialization into generalization? I ask because I've been building a website managed to grow for a fledgling business where I offer three related services, consulting, coaching, and training. Yesterday, I thought of adding mediation services. It made me wonder if I'm better with a laser focus on a single service or with a span of closely related services. I'm considering breaking the website into three separate websites, but don't know if that would be a good thing. Should I keep it as it is, create three or four separate websites or do both? A one man show, time is critical. Sure, yeah, great question, Seth. Keep it as it is. I went and looked at your website, managed to grow. By all means, keep it that way. It's not a problem if you add mediation to what you already have for consulting, coaching, and training. Now, be careful about really having hard lines that separate those anyway. I mean, all you're doing is offering services where, you know, those are clear concepts. Those have a lot of overlap anyway. I mean, I'm not clear some days if I'm coaching or consulting or training. I mean, those can really be thrown in the same pot anyway. Mediation is a nice addition to that. So in working with a company, as an example, in addition to coaching, consulting, there's certainly a lot of opportunities for mediation. And so I think that's very reasonable, but no, do not separate them. Don't try to juggle, you know, a bunch of different pots at the same time. No, just make it clear that under this umbrella, your what you offer really does extend through those concepts that include consulting, coaching, training, and mediation. Nope. Keep them all together for sure. You know, just yesterday I was, I was reading 
a document, and, and I want to tell you how to get this too. It's from Dan Sullivan, who has strategic coach uh, out of, um, well, Chicago and then Canada, but he, he works with high achievers and has for years and years and years. Great program strategic coach. But he's got a, a download that is how to get to the top and stay there. 10 strategies for developing a multiplier mindset. Now, what just ask me here, um, Seth, in this question kind of reminded me of that, but go to strategiccoach.com and up in the top right hand corner, you'll see the free download for how to get to the top and stay there. 10 strategies for developing a multiplier mindset. It's fairly short. I don't remember how many pages it is, maybe 20 or so. But anyway, it's got some, Dan has some real key elements in there. Things that you can do for yourself, with yourself, things that you can identify that'll help you rise to the top. Whether you're an independent contractor, you have your own business, you're an entrepreneur, an employee, or a dad or a mom, doesn't really matter. How to get to the top and stay there. These principles on leadership, you ought to be studying these things. I'm excited this this week. Now, I'm speaking on a Wednesday here, but this week on Friday, we're going to have the Chick-fil-A leader cast. And we're going to hear from people like Tim Tebow, John Maxwell, Marcus Buckingham, Soledad O'Brien, and and others. And we're going to be having a simulcast here in Franklin, Tennessee. The real thing is in Atlanta, but we'll be doing a simulcast here where we'll have a whole lot of happy leaders, uh, people in, in the factory here in Franklin. And then I'm going to be doing a presentation during lunch on how to create your own mastermind group. You can be a leader, even if you don't have employees. You don't have your own company. You can be a leader. And one of the ways to do that effectively is to be part of a mastermind group. I'm going to be talking about that. Hope to see some of you there. If you're a podcast listener and you're there, holler at me, grab me, make sure that we have a chance to meet each other. Well, Bill says, I've been approached to develop a template for a software company to sell, train, and market their software program. After the template is generated, I will be one of their consultants to go out to offices to perform the diagnostic and training services. I've been advised by a friend in the financial industry to make an agreement where I get paid for my time to generate the template at a discounted rate and then propose a 5% revenue sharing deal every time the template is needed. If I'm the consultant going to the office, I would also get paid for my time training. Please advise in the best direction as I would like to create a mutually beneficial arrangement. What you're describing where you are an outside consultant, it seems to be clear. I hope I'm right on this, that you're not an employee of this company. They've just contracted with you as an outside consultant to develop a template for presenting their sales presentation, the software that they're doing, how to train, how to sell, train and market their software program. For you to be paid to do that, obviously, is reasonable. You charge whatever you want. And if it's something that's going to dramatically increase their sales, then you ought to be paid really well for that. Don't get trapped in being paid for your time. This is where you can leverage how you're compensated for that. So if you're going to develop that thing, don't ever tell them that it's $100 an hour for you to develop that. That works negatively for both you and them. They're hoping that it takes you two hours to do it. You're hoping that they're okay with 40 and it just creates animosity from both sides, no matter what, no matter where you end up. Present it as a package. You know, to develop this in a way that I think will really accomplish what you want is going to be $25,000 or whatever you agree on. So make sure that that is a reasonable agreement. But the idea of you then getting a 5% revenue share every time that template is needed 
I don't really think that's possible. I, I mean, it, I shouldn't say that. Everything is negotiable. Everything is negotiable. But, but as a company owner, I would never do that. I would never pay somebody for the development on the front end and then cut them in for a percentage every time we use that. It's too open-ended. If you were going to do that, then to at least strengthen your positioning, you should say for the next 24 months or have some kind of an endpoint on it. A company would be nuts to just say, okay, and it's just open-ended so that, you know, 10 years from now, they're still paying you for that. No, I mean, you ought to be paid well for developing and that's really where you ought to have your focus. Um, You know, you might have some kind of an unusual arrangement for when you sell personally, but you're developing and getting paid for that. You're going to get paid when you use it and sell too. Your compensation is going to need to be limited to those two areas. I think it's a stretch. It's overreaching to, to have developed a template and then go on, you know, where you are getting paid open-ended beyond that. Now, if you're developing a software package itself, I mean, obviously people who develop a new windows application or something, I mean, every time somebody purchases the application, you would be paid. But then once it's in a company and they're using it, it would be unusual for them to go back and pay the software developer. So I think that's a position you're in. No, I don't think you can stretch that far. Ken says, your principles find response in my heart. Now, this is the one that I'm really, we're going to have to, we're going to have to work on this. Your principles find response in my heart. I understand that our actions and choices are our own responsibility. Complaining and blaming is nonproductive. Yet, isn't it true that the attitudes of the person to whom you are married do have some effect on outcomes? What if the standard default response of that person is no? What if every idea brought up as a possibility to pursue for self-employment is resisted or outright disapproved? What if support is non-existent except for finding a normal job with good pay and benefits? How do I move forward if the most important person in my life isn't eager to move with me? How do I communicate to help her see the optimistic side without causing her to feel badgered and pressured? Wow. This is a big issue. And this is one that comes up repeatedly. Now, when I... In, in no more dreaded Mondays, I draw a continuum of work models. Now, if you just kind of, since we're listening audio here, just kind of visualizing your mind, if we have over at the left-hand side, we've got a traditional job. Eight to five, hour for lunch, two weeks vacation, 401k, medical benefits, we understand that. Now go to the extreme right. Here we've got, you know, some kid who has a little site on the internet where he updates sports information, spends an hour a day doing that, makes $200,000 a year, walks around in his shorts and t-shirt. That would be, those would be the extremes. Now we know that in between there, we've got all kinds of varied work models. You may take a set of work skills, you're a bookkeeper and you decide rather than being vulnerable and a captive of one employee, I'm going to go out here and find five companies that are not large enough to have a full-time bookkeeper, but could use me one day a week. That's a subtle change in work model. It's a little different than employee, but it's still using pretty much the same skills. You've just simply moved from having one customer to having five. Okay. We can come on down. You can say, I really want to do something on my own, but I don't want to be that kid that just kind of figures things out. You know, that raving entrepreneur, I need something that's a little more predictable. What we kind of just define franchise. 
So you can get a franchise. It's a proven model. Here's a prototype. This is what we expect you to do. And then we go on down. I mean, you can go to Home Depot, buy a lawnmower this afternoon. You're in the landscaping business. So we're going from things that are very structured, that being a traditional job, to things that are very unstructured. We all find our place on that continuum in some way. Now, here's the deal as it relates to this question. When I'm working with a gentleman, I'm working with a gentleman right now who very much wants to leave the position he's in. He's in a great position, but it's a corporate position. He wants out. Guess what? Guess who I talked to yesterday? This is a coaching client. They live in the state of Washington, so I've never met him face to face. Guess who I talked to yesterday? His wife. I had an extended conversation with her. I want to know exactly how she feels about what we're proposing for her husband to do. Without her support, if you are looking at something that's non-traditional, creative, entrepreneurial, without a wife's support, I push people over to the left-hand side of the model that I just described to you. I'm always going to recommend they go back toward the left-hand side, things that are structured, predictable. Maybe just get another job. It's really hard when your spouse is not supportive to go outside of that. Now, the other thing, the larger issue is, this relays some challenges in the marriage relationship. I mean, we have to look at what, what what is the fear? What is causing the hesitancy here for you to move in something that would be more fulfilling for you. I'm going to play a little clip from Bette Midler here. As I kind of gather my thoughts, we're going to come back and unpack this a little bit more. What do you do if your spouse is not supportive when you want to do something creative? Okay, so my question is, what would make your wife that fearful of you doing what you're proposing to do? Somehow, there's fear behind this. Obviously, if she felt like things would be fine when you go in that direction, she wouldn't have that kind of resistance. What is it that's holding her back from allowing you the freedom to do that? Has she had a bad experience? Have there been times before when you've tried something and then it didn't work out and it created hardship? I mean, obviously we know that success is the greatest healer of that kind of uncertainty. I mean, there have been times in the past when Joanne would have preferred that I just had a regular job. And Joanne was in library science when we met as just kids starting college. She would have been perfectly happy had I gotten a job at General Motors 
and worked there for 35 years and retired. She would have been perfectly happy with a modest income. She doesn't require a lot, but she also understood very quickly how restricted, trapped, and confined I would feel in that kind of environment. So her position was to support me, not that she had total confidence in my wacky ideas that I've pursued. And there've been times when I disappointed both of us, believe me, but she knows that if I tried to make myself an employee, I would blow a gasket. I need things that are creative, innovative things that are changing things that challenge me. That's where I thrive. That's what unleashes my best skills. So she's supportive of me, even though she would be very comfortable with a different work model. Now I'll be quick to add again, success does, you know, pretty amazing things at this point in our lives. Would she want me to go back to that? No, not a chance. I mean, she's pretty spoiled at this point with the time flexibility that we have and the open-ended income that we've been able to enjoy. So she's certainly not in the last, you know, 15 years saying, I want you to go get a job. No, not a chance, but there's something here where your wife is not willing to support who you are. And I have to suspect that goes, that goes beyond just providing an income. Here's how you may have to approach this. When you talk about doing something on your own, something creative entrepreneurial, a lot of the things that we describe that we talk about here don't require bricks and mortar. They're not a traditional business where you go rent a building, buy inventory, hire employees. Now, if you want to start a restaurant or a bowling alley or a hardware store or a service station, those are the kind of things we're talking about. Those are risky. They require tremendous amounts of capital. You mortgage your home and everything to make those start. But a lot of the things we're talking about don't require that. You can start a little eBay business. You can start a little landscaping business on the side. You can start some writing things or you can speak or coach. I mean, those are all things you can do without jeopardizing what you're doing now. What I would encourage you to do is start something where you start generating income without jeopardizing your current job, without burning any bridges there. But give yourself six months of intense activity to generate significant income. If all of a sudden, your little sideline is duplicating your regular income. I suspect it's going to erase a lot of your wife's fears about you making a transition. And a lot of people that I work with, that's exactly what we do. We don't stop what they're currently doing until the income from the new venture is duplicating or exceeding that current income. You know, I'm going to send you a copy of the audio CD set that we've got. It's titled Living, Loving, and Working. It's a two-part, two-CD audio set that Joanna and I did where we talk about living together with me being an entrepreneur. I mean, we have a lot of people ask her about that. You know, when I speak, people pull her aside. You know, how did you, how do you make the kind of life that you guys have? You know, how do you handle living with somebody who's an entrepreneur and who doesn't want traditional job. You don't have predictable income. You don't have guaranteed medical coverage. How do you live with that? Well, Joanne has pretty good answers. She's pretty understanding of all that, obviously. And, and we talk on there. You'll hear Joanne get emotional about some of the times in our lives when I was trying to figure things out, but we remain true to each other, supporting the uniqueness that each of us bring to the table regardless. And I certainly hope 
that for you as well. I'll send you that copy of Living, Loving, Working. Great question and one that touches a whole lot of listeners because it's something that I hear repeatedly week after week. I'm real close to this. I mean, I should pull Joanna in here and get her input on this. I'm real close to this because I know I have had the absolute best scenario for that that a man could possibly dream of. Joanne is so supportive and encouraging. She's my biggest fan. It has given me the freedom to try to experiment, to fall on my face, get back up again. She loves me, supports me no matter what. I'm really close to a situation right now where it is the antithesis of that, where this gentleman has had nothing but criticism, belittlement, and he his accomplishments are so tiny, he's never been able to stretch, to put his wings out. He's always taken the safe And now he's passed his real working years and he knows that he missed a whole lot and he's extremely resentful. And the anger that's coming to the surface at this point in their relationships may still destroy the marriage after 40 years, which is where I fear that it's going. So this is a critical, critical issue. Work on it. No matter where you are in your life, your work, your marriage, work on it. Make sure that you're on the same page it'll exponentially increase what each of you are able to accomplish. Okay, I'll move on. Andrew from Georgia says, I've been in PNC property and casualty sales for over seven years now. I've enjoyed strange success. My numbers aren't stellar, yet I've had unpaid promotions and have been made a manager within a niche program at our agency. Again, no additional compensation. My question is this, If I've not had incredible sales success, although I've been steady and nurtured solid and lasting relationships, would it make sense to test my marketability? I'm 40 and making a very mid-range salary. My excelling seems to be in leadership areas, even sales management. I have no idea my worth in the market and feel I should see what's out there. I feel I'm entering into what could be my most productive years. I want to make sure I'm in a place that fits. Yes, test your marketability. That's healthy for everybody, including your current employer. I mean, they should not be uh, terrified by that. I mean, they want to know that you are in the best possible place. If you're sitting back there thinking, wow, I think the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. Go check it out. Go check it. See if it really is. If you've been at the same place for seven years, you're 40 now, means you're 33 then. Yeah, you ought to be a different person. You ought to be a, a stronger candidate now than you were then you ought to be a a candidate for things that you were not a candidate for seven years ago no harm at all in doing it's healthy at any given point to do a resume identify what are your most marketable skills i mean this is where i encourage each of you to see yourselves as self-employed anyway you really are i don't care if you have one customer that meaning you're in a pretty traditional job all that means is that you have one customer But you ought to be able to identify at any given time, what are your most marketable skills? If you had to make a change, where would you go to do that? How could you do a job search instantly? Be ready. That's not being paranoid and suspicious. That's being in a healthy, positive position to add your maximum value day by day in what you're doing. So do a job search. In a job search, you may discover you really are undercompensated. You do have opportunity for new things that you did not are not doing now. You also may discover, whoa, things are pretty good where I am. You know, with the, in a tough economy, people are being, I'm being paid pretty much what other people are being paid. 
this is the best option. That gives you a different sense of what you're doing now if you choose to stay there. You no longer feel trapped or, gee, the grass is green. No, you've looked. You know whatever everything is out there. This is what you choose on an ongoing basis. It's a healthy process regardless. Absolutely, at 40, do a job search, put together a great resume. That in itself will help you identify what are your strongest competencies, your highest areas of of. Uh, value that you bring to the table. So that's healthy no matter what, if you don't go any further than that. But if you want to go ahead and do a job search, absolutely do that. And then you'll have more confidence about staying or leaving. David from Detroit says, I worked in banking for most of my twenties, was very successful at it. After the night, after the 2009 crash, I realized that I was no longer enjoying being in banking and dreaded going to work each day. I hit 30 years old, decided to resign from my position, do some soul searching. Looking back, it may not have been the best decision to resign from one job without having another good paying job lined up. But at the time I was so unhappy, my health was going downhill due to stress and anxiety. It's now been about one and a half years. And I realized that my true passion is in technology, entrepreneurship, and writing. How do I transition from working for a large investment firm to working for a tech company? How do I explain leaving a high paying job without having another good job lined up? You can do all of what you describe here, David. This is not unreasonable at all to do exactly what you're describing. Put your resume together. You may want to shift to more of a functional resume than a chronological one. So you don't have to address these time issues that you're talking about. So that's one thing. But the other thing is, I mean, companies in today's environment don't look down their nose at somebody who left a job, a good job, and went and did something else. Now, you're going to have to account for this last year and a half. You can't just say you were sitting on your butt, you know, looking at your navel, doing your soul searching. You're going to have to describe what you did that was productive in that period of time. But that's why you may want to use a functional resume rather than a chronological one so you can bring to the top of your resume the two or three highest areas of competence. Those may not have been the most prominent things you did in your banking career, but those are the things where you have proven competence and things you want to continue doing. So if you know that's in tech skills, writing, those kind of things, make sure those are prominently displayed on your resume, but you can get past this. I mean, make sure, uh, just understand a resume is just simply something to whet the appetite of a potential employer. It's not something to give them all the information they need to make an intelligent decision. No, you just want to whet their appetite. Hey, let me grab one more here. Roger says, Dan, I got a project to help our wounded warriors, but I got two things holding me back. As a hobby, I hand make pens from different types of exotic wood. There's an exotic wood called Purple Heart. It has a very deep purple color, almost the same color as the military's Purple Heart metal. I want to make pens using this Purple Heart wood, sell them, give the proceeds to the wounded warrior project. My dilemma is whether to take a small portion of the proceeds to pay for my time in making pens. Is it reasonable and ethical to take a small payment for my time? Yes. I pulled up the pen. The pens are gorgeous, Roger. They're beautiful. The pens that you are making Now you know, you've got two parts of your question. I'm going to save the second half of your question for next week's podcast, because you say I also have a fear of success. That's the bigger elephant in the room your fear of success. As far as what you're doing, is it reasonable and ethical to take a small payment for your time when you say that you're giving the proceeds to the Wounded Warrior Project? Absolutely. You can frame that any way that you want to. You can say that 
the net profits will be given to the Wounded Warrior Project. Nobody's going to see that any differently over whether you're saying the proceeds go. When you say the proceeds, people don't really understand anyway. Are you saying that every dollar, if they pay $20 for the pen, $20, or are the proceeds the net profit anyway? So you say, well, I had my materials, you know, my time, really the proceeds are $2. You can make that work any way that you want to very ethically. There's nothing misrepresented about that. You can say that a portion of the proceeds, you can say that all the profits go there. You can say that 10% of the revenue goes there. Frame it any way that you want. But yeah, don't put yourself, don't back yourself into a corner where you end up resenting doing it because it's taking a lot of your time and people want them and you're not being compensated in any way. No, you don't want to do that. Make sure that you have a way that it's fair for you, even if it goes to a larger scale. Second half of your question is you talk about your own fear of success. You really are afraid this is going to be something that is really successful. You aren't sure you're prepared to handle that. That's a question for another day. Great question. We tend to put ceilings on our success based on what we think we deserve. I'm going to talk about that in next week's podcast. Well, this is Dan Miller. You're listening to Dan Miller on 48 Days Online Radio. Love getting your questions each week, unpacking those here in ways that uh, hopefully help all of us and challenge me. I mean, it's instructive for me. This is one of the highlights of my week to be able to come back in here and look at questions and then figure out how can we all learn from these things together. Thanks for being part of the 48 Days community. Check out the activity at 48days.net, our upcoming events. Let us know how we can help you as you continue to find or create work that is meaningful, purposeful, and profitable.